Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. With me in studio today is Darcy Jenish. How can I describe this man safe to say that he seems to write all the books I want to write? Since he's always ahead of me, I've been forced to enjoy his many books on subjects dear to my heart, works on the Montreal Canadien and the NHL, his book on David Thompson called Epic Wanderer, his book on the finances of the government of Canada, Trudeau, Mulroney, and the Bankruptcy of Canada. He's published Indian Fall, The Last Great Days of the Plains Cree and the Blackfoot Confederacy. All of these have been bestsellers, and his latest work is no exception. I wish I'd written it also. The title is The Making of the October Crisis, Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ, published by Doubleday Canada, and he's in studio with me to discuss this book. Darcy, welcome to the mic. Thank you for having me, Patrice. It's uh, an honor. Darcy, you've written about a wide range of topics. What brought you to write this book? Well, it emerged out of an article I wrote for Legion magazine that appeared in their October 2010 issue, which was the uh, 40th anniversary of the October crisis. So when I began the research, I called a couple of old newspaper guys in Montreal that I know, and the second one said, uh, oh, you got to talk to Robert Cote. He knows everything. He was head of the Montreal bomb squad in the 1960s. And so Bob proved to be a very remarkable individual. He's still alive. He's 82 years old. We'll come to him in a minute. Yes. But that was the the origins of it. Now, you were a teenager when yes. these events unfolded. While you were researching and writing this book, what do you remember of your youth and how you reacted to these bombings? Well, the bombings, I mean, I was too young. I mean, let's face it, they okay. started in the spring of 63. I was 11 years old. Okay. And then, of course, all through the 60s, I mean, I was a Montreal Canadiens fan, rabid. So if I was reading anything about Montreal, it was uh, hockey stuff. Now, one thing I'm having a little difficulty is what I actually remember from when I was a kid. But I do remember reading something in either the weekend or the magazines that came with your Saturday paper. They had a big story at some point about the FLQ and the bombings. It was sort of focused on the Westmount mailbox bombings, which was very early on. And one of the most famous incidents that's really stuck with Canadians of my generation, your generation probably as well. As far as the October crisis, I was 18, I was in grade 13, as we called it then, and I think the only actual memory I have was on a Saturday night, I was living in Peterborough, Ontario at the time, and I think on a Saturday night we were driving around and, you know, we got the tunes on the radio and suddenly there's an interruption to say they'd found Pierre Laporte and he was murdered. I was a news junkie at the time, that's why I wound up in journalism, but In terms of my only memory, those are the only two actual memories from that period. When we think of Quebec in the 1960s, and the context in here is very important, obviously. Mm. We think of Quebec in the 1960s, we think of the Quiet Revolution, we think about the government of Quebec assuming powers that it had never used before, sudden presence in the fields of education, of the development of the hydroelectricity file, the, the nationalization of, high, of electricity. We think about taking over the health care from the church. These events unfold, as you say, they start in the spring of 1963. They unfold in parallel to the Quiet Revolution, but these are not quiet events. These are detonating events. These are loud events. Your book spends a great deal of time examining the bombings from 63 to 1970. What's your sense of who these people were, well, they these were, terrorists? They were invariably young people. And the interesting thing about Quebec at the time, of course, was that 
This was the last generation of big, big Quebec families, the 8, 10, 12 kids. So you did have a, a very large cohort of young men in the city of Montreal. And this, the FLQ is primarily a, a Montreal you know, phenomenon. And a lot of them were not well-educated. I mean, again, Quebec lagged behind the rest of the country in terms of educating its youth, certainly during the Duplessis era, which came to an end in uh, with the 60. Well, yes, he died in 59, but the government fell in 1960. So that was part of bringing this Quebec into the more modern era of broadening the, the number of kids finishing high school and not even bother about post-secondary. But So a lot of these young guys were poorly educated, kind of at loose ends, and at the same time, there was this radicalization going on, a lot of turmoil, you know, big picture stuff like the Quebec government bringing in all these reforms mm-hmm. to move Quebec ahead culturally and socially. And so there was a lot of turmoil and turbulence in the air. The uh, young guys that planted the bombs, made the bombs, a lot of them were not the brightest guys on the block, so to speak. But the interesting thing is that there were some very bright and smart guys. They were publishing this little newsletter called La Cognée. La Cognée, yes. And they published pseudonymously. They all used pseudonyms. And I believe some of them, you know, I was never able to find out who they were. But I believe, I suspect some of them went on to careers in academia because they were very well versed in history and they could really bang the drum about the humiliation of Quebec, about Quebecers were colonized people, oppressed, exploited. These are messages that really fed into the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, but just a little further out on the spectrum than conventional reforms. I mean, they are very much inspired by the anti-colonialist movements in the developing world, influenced by what had happened in Algeria, the various struggles for national independence, the shrugging off of colonialist powers, and they perceived Quebec as a colonized nation. That's right. They, They were not a province like the others. They were a colony. They weren't a minority. They were colonized people. And, of course, in 1960 alone, I believe it was something like 18 African nations or Asian gained their independence. And not coincidentally, that's when you get the first significant independence movement, which is called the Rassemblement pour l'Independence Nationale, which from 1960 through to 1966 election was a movement as opposed to a party. Mm -hmm. This was the the group led by Pierre Bourgault. Pierre Bourgault, yes, and some others. You know, now these again— you know, academics, intellectuals, mm. lawyers, artists. But see, then they also had the youth wing. Yes. And the FLQ comes right out of the youth wing. This one group, they call themselves the Réseau de Résistance. And they were just about going around painting French on the stop signs. Arrête instead of stop. And mm-hmm. that was their shtick. But then there was these other fella, the other three guys that moved out, and they went further out on the spectrum to form the Front de Liberation de Quebec, which in fact was modeled on the Front de Liberation Nationale in Algeria. They took that name. And there were all kinds of liberation movements all over, I mean, throughout Africa, South America. They also seemed to attract people that were born and raised elsewhere. There's a fellow called Sherman. Sherm. Sherm. Yeah. Uh, Shooters, another one. Shooters, Shooters. yeah. George Shooters. Who are these people? Why are they? And one of the guys who drove the the getaway car, was it for James Cross abduction in 1970, was also uh, Nigel Hammer. Hammer. Well, he was Anglo from the West Island. But yeah, Shoulders was one of the, the founders of the movement, him and Raymond Villeneuve and Gabriel Hudon. And Shoulders was a Belgian native who, a very unusual background. I mean, he was an illegitimate son 
and I don't think he ever really lived with his mother. He was kind of raised in uh, by a, you know religious brothers or something. He comes to North America, you know, sails to New York, then goes up to Quebec because he speaks French and he's going to be comfortable there. Goes to the University of Montreal and graduates at 57 or 58. And ironically, just as he's graduating, Fidel Castro makes an appearance in Montreal and is greeted as a hero. Mm-hmm. So he's inspired very much by the Cuban Revolution, but he's also involved with the RIN, the Rassemblement de l'Independence Nationale. He's involved with that. He's a little older than these other guys. So, yes. But he, he hooks up with Villeneuve and Houdon, and they form this movement. And, you know, he's involved in the first wave of bombings, which goes from uh, mid-March till end of May 63. These guys have access to dynamite. It strikes me, as I read your book, that the FLQ was basically funded through bank robberies and through theft of dynamite. It seems as though dynamite was floating around Montreal. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they were building a subway at the time, you know, like, Bear in mind that Expo was on the horizon. Mm-hmm. They were building like something like 10 miles of subway and the auto route Ville-Marie, which was a subterranean yes. highway. In Montreal, the island is a rock. I mean, underneath yes. a little bit of topsoil. So it's not like Toronto where you can burrow through sedimentary mm-hmm. rock. You got a blast. And so these guys could just walk onto a construction site and there'd be a big red box with explosives on it. I'm amazed. <laughs> well, it, the astonishing thing is... With these thefts going on, with these bombings that went on, you've got the Lesage government and the Daniel Johnson government, and it's finally the Bourassa government, elected in, in April 1970. And in June 1970, after seven-plus years of these bombings and nearly 200 of them, they finally bring in some regulations to control the sale and distribution of dynamite. I'm amazed at how long it took them. I mean, again, it's remarkable. As, as I read the catalog of events that yeah. you cover so well, there seems to be a mechanism. You steal a couple of banks, you get some funding together, you have a guy called Geoffroy, who's the bomb oh, maker. Pierre-Paul Geoffroy. Pierre-Paul Geoffroy, who you say uh, would have masterminded over 100 of the, uh, of the bombings? Well, no, he was involved in 30, he was implicated in 31 bombings, but they laid four charges in each incident, and each of them carried a life sentence. So he had 124 charges related to the bombings. Now, Geoffroy did not act alone. He had accomplices who fled. I mean, they got the heck out of town. I mean, that's an interesting story in itself because there was four of these guys. So they wound up down in New York City staying with, I think, some of the Black Panthers and Students for a Democratic Society. And then two of them boarded a uh, Pierre Charest and Allard, I think his name was now, in May of 69, they board an aircraft flying from New York to Miami, and just as the plane is beginning its descent, Sheree walks into the cockpit with a gun and says, we're going to Havana. Mm-hmm. And those two guys end up spending 10 years in Cuba. The other two, they went to Jordan and wind up in a Palestinian terrorist camp and wind up in this magazine article in 1970 or 71, as Salim and Salim or something. Yes, yes. Quite an incredible story. So Geoffroy took the rap for everything. He, just, he actually he actually was imprisoned. Oh, yeah. He got, well, he got the 124 life sentences, yeah. which was the harshest prison sentence ever handed out in the British Commonwealth. Remarkable. Now, your book does mention, and you come back to it a number of times, there were eight people who died yes. uh, as a result of well, these, uh, yeah, these six, bombings. Six altogether. Does that include Pierre Lepo? No, that's that's. Before Pierre Laporte. That's Pierre Laporte. So we're talking about just about the bombings. And one of those is uh, the young man, Jean Corbeau, 
who uh, actually was trying to lay a bomb Not down. A bomb. And the reality is that, that people died. These terrorists were successful in what they were seeking to do. Well, they, did, you know, they did cause terrorism. They did cause terrorism. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you do have to give them some credit in that they did try to avoid loss of life because they planted most of their bombs at night. So then they were timed to go off in the middle of the night. But, of course, it didn't always work that way. I mean, April 20th, 1963, it's like one month into this, Wilfred O'Neill, who's a 65-year-old night watchman, dies. He's working at the Canadian Army Recruiting Centre on Sherbrooke Street in downtown Montreal, and a bomb explodes just before midnight and kills a poor guy. And Corbeau was 16 years old and from a well-to-do family in town of Mount Royal, and he got recruited by part of the Valliers Gagnon gang. We don't know exactly how he got connected. Yeah. There's a, a wonderful little movie by Mathieu Denis called Corbeau. It came out three years ago. Yes. C-O-R-B-O. Yes. And the film, I think, succeeds in demonstrating how the elders of the group were very seductive and, and luring this young man. But I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that there, there, people did die. The, the bombings were in some cases planted in mailboxes, but they also targeted important symbols of Canada, did they not? Oh, yeah. I mean, the federal buildings, post offices and the like, they started off attacking symbols of federalism. And, of course, the Westmount mailbox bombings were an attack on Anglo wealth and control of the economy because Westmount was, you know, Montreal's equivalent of Rosedale or something, you know, the high-end neighborhood where the wealthy Anglos live. So that was really an attack on Anglo wealth and privilege. There were also initially attacks on federal sites. But then as you move through the 60s, the whole thing changes and they start going after private companies and companies that have labor troubles. French and English. La Grenade, for example. La, La Grenade. Shoe manufacturer. Yeah, this was at the East End and uh, Rochelle and Debreville and Rue Rochelle. Mm-hmm. And a little four-story building, family-owned. and On strike. On strike. This was May 5th, 66. The strike had begun in, in 65, and the company hired strike breakers, and so the strike was faltering. And again, it was the Valliers Gagnon gang, Pierre Valliers and uh, Charles Gagnon were a perfect example of what I was saying about these very smart, mm-hmm. inflammatory individuals who could incite a group of younger, easily manipulated individuals. And in this case, the bomb maker picks up a kid, a 16 or 17-year-old kid at his school at lunch. They drive off in a motor scooter, park a block west of the factory, and the guy in the motor scooter gives the kid a shoebox. He takes it back and says, here, I'm returning these goods. And this poor secretary, Therese Moran, goes to take it and put it on the president's desk, and the thing blows up and kills her. She's 64 years old. Uh, Gaetan de Rosé, I believe his name was. Some of the, so many names in the book, but sure. <laughs> he ends up being a, a deputy minister in the Quebec government. So another interesting tangent to the story. But yes, I the mean, book is rich in the sense that sometimes people do complain about having too many names in history books. But I never complain about that. Yes. Uh, the richer, the better. But which brings me to the topic of. What this book contributes, Darcy? I mean, there's quite a shelf of books now on the events of October 1970, and we're coming up to the 50th anniversary Mm. soon. What is it about your book that makes it different? What do you bring to the table with this book? Well, first of all, it's the first full account of these events written in English Canada. I mean, it just hasn't been a story that's engaged the interest of professional historians in English Canada. The only question that interests writers, you know, commentators, political memoirists in English Canada is 
the War Measures Act and the uh, detention of close to 500 individuals yes. and, and the whole Pierre Trudeau question. You know, yes. so he sort of sucks up a lot of air, you know. Yeah. So that's been the focus. In Quebec, there's been a ton written, substantial body of work. Louis it, Fournier's big book is uh, yeah. on the FLQ. Yeah, I mean, it was a uh, anatomy of an underground movement, he called mm -hmm. it. And it's kind of a, a little bit on the dry side, I guess, but it, it's written in a way I think that would only be of interest to Quebecois. But also there's been a ton of stuff written by nationalists, separatists, and... It and, seems as though they've all written memoirs. Well, there's been a lot of them written memoirs, and they kind of elevate themselves to the status of patriots who gave all for their country. Mm -hmm. And now the other thing is, but nobody ever told the law enforcement side of the story. Yes. So, so tell that, us about that. Now, it brings us back to Mr. <laughs> Couté. Yes. I asked the question, I mean, the Champlain Society is all about preserving the documentation. You say that uh, you interviewed people like Robert Couté. He would have been in his mid-20s in the 1960s when all this started. Tell me about your sources. I mean, who are these guys? They're still alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was really lucky because, as I say, that was the starting point. Mm -hmm. And Robert was a fascinating individual because he's got a superb memory. And, you know, like in our very first interview, I mean, I'm just talking to him on the phone, and he does tell me about April 20th, 1963, when uh, Wilfred O'Neill dies. He tells me about the Westmount mailbox bombings and Walter Lejaw, who was gravely wounded, injured, ruined his life, terribly basically, injured. terribly injured. And he tells me about La Grenade. And he takes me right out to, you know, he mentions Pierre-Paul Joffroy, because he was there the night they arrested him. There were three bombs in the guy's apartment, so Bob had to be there. He was the dynamite guy. And July 12th, 1970, which was the super bomb, you know, the 110 pounds of dynamite right. in a stolen Volkswagen Beetle parked underneath the head office complex of the Bank of Montreal. So he's telling me all this stuff, and I kept saying, well, I couldn't believe all this stuff. Like, I never heard it. So he starts to explain to me, well, it was wave after wave after wave of terrorism. And that, you know, the police would shut down one gang and another group would come together and start doing more stuff. So he was fascinated. And when I, when I went down to see him, he takes me out and we meet Julien Jaguer, who was a uh, detective who investigated the La Grenade bombing and also was involved in the October crisis. He got hooked up with this informer, Poupette, this young lady. And he later introduced me to Gilles Forgue who was a lieutenant on the, uh, he was a detective and involved in interrogating this fellow, George Dubray, who was implicated in 15 bombings. Now, Bob had all his incident reports from these bombings. It's Which all... is remarkable. Now, why are these things not in an archive somewhere? Well, I think they are now, but you see, the police department was going to throw them out, and he retrieved them. Wonderful. And, you know, and so he had all this material, and he also had some very obscure books. He had a nice little library of obscure titles that... I don't know whether I ever stumbled upon, but mm -hmm. anyway, so there's Robert Cote with his memory, with his documents, and with his former colleagues. So he introduces me to these other guys, and when I was done talking to them, they'd tell me their stories, and I'd say, do you happen to have any documents? And, oh, I think I got something in the bedroom or down in the basement. <laughs> they walk up, and here's his transcripts of confessions given by these bombers on the night they were arrested. I mean, we've got Chauffeurs, and we've got Dubrays. It's, it's well, incredible. It, it makes the book all the more lively in the sense mm -hmm. that we are accessing a new source of intelligence here, that you're able to bring these guys to light and to bring their memories to light. It really does make the book easy to follow in the sense that we do get the sense of these waves. And reading it, the way you've packaged it, it is remarkable how consistent and continuous 
the bombing practices are from the 1963 right through to 1970. I'd forgotten about the attack, for example, on Mayor Drapeau's house. Yes. I mean, they caused serious damage to a rather modest home in Rosemont. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and that was incredible. I mean, they, they planted the bomb in an exterior staircase that led down to the basement, but it was big enough bomb that it just blew a great big piece of stone and concrete foundation, uplifted the, the yeah. floor, knocked the furnace off its moorings and, you know, blew the hardwood off the floor upstairs. You also have nice pictures. I mean, you see Mr. Drapeau in his basement and it, it's devastating. Yeah. Now, the FLQ moves from bombings like that to something completely different in October 1970. We know the basic facts that they abducted James Cross, the British consul in Montreal. Interestingly enough, they had considered abducting the Israeli consul mm-hmm. in Montreal. They tried... They'd considered the American yes. consul in Montreal. They decided that James Cross was more predictable, and so they went after Cross. But the reality is, is that they moved from bombing institutions to bombing the mayor's house, and then they take on the big fish, Pierre Laporte, mm. deputy premier of Quebec, minister of labor of Quebec. What do you think prompted these terrorists to go from rather anonymous bombing to literally being personally involved in abducting? Was it out of desperation? Or was it simply an escalation to attract more attention? What do you think was in the minds of these young men? Well, it was an escalation. The other thing is, and, and you can get really, if you drill down into the personalities and the dynamics of the group, Jacques Langteau, he caused the October crisis more than anybody else. And he was the leader of the liberation cell, which kidnapped James Cross. So in the summer of 1970, they were hooked up with a looser you know, group from the South Shore, the Paul Rose gang. These guys had done a whole bunch of bank robberies and scams, and they were trying to figure out what to do next. And there was a bit of a divide between the Rose group and the Langteau group. Now, the thing about Jacques Langteau was... He was involved in the attempt to abduct Moishe Golan, I believe his name was, the Israeli consul, and they were arrested, and he skipped bail and was on the run. Plus, his wife was pregnant with their second child, and he'd been involved marginally in different parts of this whole movement since the spring of 1963 or 64. So he was kind of at the end of the line if he was going to do anything. There was an element of personal desperation in him, and he was driving this thing forward. And he knew that he was going to be arrested sooner or later, so he had to do something spectacular or everything he'd done for the past seven years was going to come to nothing. And the other thing is that, of course, these politically inspired kidnappings had got to be a kind of epidemic in Central and South America. You make a great point there, yes. So that was the inspiration. And the other thing they realized was that the bombings were really futile. They weren't doing what these guys thought they would do. And again, you know, when you look at terrorism, whether it was then or now, the terrorists can say what they're doing, what they're trying to achieve. doesn't ever really make sense to people who are thinking, I think, a little more rationally or clearly. But these young guys who a lot of what they said they were doing— some of it was pure intimidation. Business executives who had companies on strike put a bomb out front of their house. That's just pure intimidation. The owner of the Murray Hill Taxi Company bombed his house because of this. His limos had the rights to airports. So they right. want to intimidate business executives. But the other thing they were trying to do, like when there were more symbolic bombings, like attacking uh, armories. armories or government buildings, was, as they said, they wanted to awaken the Quebec population to their status 
this is this or colonized, oppressed, exploited people. It was it, they were like wake up calls, make some noise, wake up the populace. Now, in my opinion, the people that are trying to wake up, essentially they're elders. A lot of these fathers were working in factories and mills and were pretty well paid. They were shut out of the higher echelons. But anyways, there was no way that the bombs were going to get these guys to wake up. There's no way their fathers were going to give up reasonable jobs in factories and mills and plants. The reality is that there was no support for terrorist activity There was no support. So finally they do this. They turn to kidnappings and their stated objective, they call themselves the liberation cell, was to get these guys that were in jail out of jail. That was their stated objectives. And then in a tape that some of the the cross-kidnappers made, they also said that they thought that this would bring down the wrath of the big Montreal English dailies and, again, expose what they saw as a rampant racism of the English media against the Quebec population. So it was an escalation. Uh, it was in part desperation on the part of one individual, who is Jacques Langteau, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they recognized that everything that had taken place for the previous seven years had not really achieved anything. I mean, they're unrepentant, aren't they? They, you describe their courtroom behavior. Many of them decided to represent themselves, mm. much to the irritation of the judges presiding. But it seems to me that they were unrepentant to the end of their lives. Most of these guys never regretted what their actions were, with the possible exception of Pierre-Paul Geoffroy, who regretted Geoffroy. all those bombings. Yeah, and Jacques Cossette Trudel a bit. He was somewhat apologetic. But no, Francis Simard died. Who's one of the killers of Pierre Laporte. He was one of the two guys in the house when Laporte was murdered. He was unrepentant to the end. In fact, he came out of prison in 1981 or 82 and wrote a memoir. And, you know, he said he'd do it again. Jacques and Rose, the same thing. Same, Jacques Rose got involved in a political campaign in the early 90s for the Quebec NDP. In fact, he, he was tried, a leader. He's a leader of the Quebec yeah, NDP. Yeah, well, he tried to run for office, but mm-hmm. couldn't because he had a life sentence. That's right. That's his right. brother did run and got like 1.6% of the vote. Right. But yeah, he, and he gave an interview, like somebody from Le Devoir was following him around as he canvassed and that. And yeah, he said he'd do it again. And Jacques Langteau, he's still out there. I mean, he went on an eminently respectable career as a publisher in Quebec mm-hmm. and published some very good authors. But yeah, he even said that when he was sentenced, you know, they came back in his sister and her husband, Jacques Cossette Trudel, came back in December 78, and Jacques Langteau and his wife came back in January 79, by which time he had three kids, two born in uh, exile. and In Cuba? Well, one in Cuba, one in France. Okay. So in his trial, when Jacques Cassette Trudel and Louise Cassette Trudel, when they had their trial, they were repentant. They were remorseful for their actions and acknowledged all that. And Jacques Langteau goes to court and says, essentially... Don't expect me to do what they did. He said, I'm not going to, you know, repudiate. I sacrificed all for my country, and I'm not going to repudiate that. And he got a three-year sentence because he was unrepentant. Again, one of the many merits of your book is that you actually document their punishment. And with the exception of the two guys in the early wave of bombings who were actually condemned to hang. Right. But the laws changed, and so they were released and essentially served practically no time at all. Oh, no, they did. Actually, it was Francois Shearm, because you mentioned the Mm -hmm. two foreign guys who got involved in this. I mean, Shearm had a fascinating history because he was born in Hungary, I think 1944, and then his family got caught up in all of that displacement and uprooting at the end of the Second World War. So they moved from Hungary to Austria. Then they think that things are going to settle down in Hungary, so they go back to their homeland. Then they realize it's going to be communism, so they head to West Germany. And his name went from 
from Ferenc to Ferrand's. Francois. Ronnie Francois. <laughs> he serves in the French Foreign Legion and in Vietnam and Algeria and was appalled by the imperialist forces and the viciousness of them. And that's when he kind of developed an underlying sympathy for these movements. So then he comes to Montreal, basically a, a male sort of real romance and marries a girl of Hungarian descent. And he gravitates again into this liberation movement. And how much time will he serve? He served 14 years. Oh, he did serve 14 years. Yeah, see, there was him and Edmond Gwinnett, and it was the International Firearms Robbery. They went in there to clean out this gun store. It was one of the biggest guns and weapons and ammunition stores in Canada. That caused the death of one man at the hands of the police. Yeah, one of the employees. One of the employees was shot. I mean, it was a terrible thing. So these two guys were sentenced to hang. This was August '64. By the time that they were, you know, there was an appeal, the conviction overturned, and then they were sentenced again. Mm. And by the time they were sentenced for a second time, we had repealed the death sentence, and so they got life. And Still, the impression remains that a lot of the people who were involved in these bombings and in these uh, the abductions and the murder of Pierre Laporte. Got off pretty easy. What do you well, think? Well, oh, yeah. I mean, Simard, he got a life sentence. He was defiant, et cetera, in court. Now, Jacques Rose, that's the really strange part of this story. I mean, it's clear that there were only two guys in the house at the time. Which is something you clarify in your book, again, yeah. for the first time, because there was always a lingering doubt that there was a third man. Yeah. But so Jacques Rose and Francis Simard. And Francis Simard. So Rose is acquitted of, of murder, acquitted of kidnapping acquitted of a third charge, and they finally get him on accessory after the fact, and he gets an eight-year sentence. So I don't know how three jury uh, juries could acquit, given the evidence. Now, and the other thing that's very interesting is when the Parti Québécois came to power, they appointed uh, two commissions. One was the Duchesne Commission, mm-hmm. and uh, Jules Duchesne was a Quebec Justice Department lawyer and a PQ supporter, if not probably a member. And they sent him out to investigate this. And his report is fascinating for the detail it provides. And he went into all the jails, interviewed all these guys. and um, He's the one who finally establishes that it was La Rose and Simard that were present in that house. Yeah, Rose. Yeah, yeah. but he doesn't tell you what happened. No. And, you know, so he leaves these stones unturned. And the other interesting thing was Duchesne did not interview Bourassa, Jerome Choquette, who was the justice minister at the time, didn't interview Robert Demer, didn't interview anybody from the other side. So it was a very skewed report in the end, but definitely useful for the detail. And again, that the Parti Québécois would do this, I mean, there was always... I mean, let's be clear, the Parti Québécois never supported terrorism, never supported any of those activities. L'Evêque was always very clear about it. And they needed to make sure that, mm-hmm. well, they wanted to, again, symbolically demonstrate and maybe substantively demonstrate that they were not supportive of those of mm-hmm. those activities. And they were a government of civil government and yeah. uh, intending on, on governing as such. I want to leave it. I mean, this is, again, we're talking almost 50 years later. Mm-hmm. Most of these guys are dead. Most of these people have died. Now, of the terrorists, Paul Rose is gone, Francis Simard is gone, but Jacques Lagteau is around, and, and Jacques Cossette Trudel, and well, most of them just faded into the woodwork. I mean, Geoffroy is still around. I, you know, we know where he lives. He lives out in Terrebonne, northeast of Montreal. As a reporter from the press tried to interview him on the 40th anniversary. But he's kept a very low profile. Yeah, I wrote ever since. Ever no, since. yeah, I wrote a letter to him, but it went unanswered. I mean, some of the younger terrorists are still around. They're all still out there, and some of them have wound up 
up in the news, charged with new offenses. These are all men in their 60s yeah, and early well, the 70s. One, yeah, the one guy uh, was attempted to bomb a second cop. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I want to leave it with this. The most unbelievable news I didn't realize is that James Cross is still alive. Yeah, we haven't heard from him. And, uh, yeah, He's 95, 95 years 95 old. 95 years old. Or yeah. maybe 96 yeah. by now, but yeah. uh, he will have outlasted all of them, perhaps. He's just about... <laughs> Thank you, Darcy, for this interview. It's wonderful to meet with you and to talk about this wonderful book. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Patrice. It's my pleasure. I was speaking with Darcy Jenish, the author of The Making of the October Crisis, Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ, published by Doubleday Canada. We're rapidly approaching the 50th anniversary of the October Crisis, and I'm sure listeners will want to read this book. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you very much. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was recorded on December 14, 2018 and produced by Heather Goh. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you.